Hello, everyone, and happy Monday. Welcome to a new episode of the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Kibblehouse, and today we have our very new Gills Club Science team member, Erin Spencer. She is a marine ecologist studying shark biomechanics. Erin is a PhD candidate at Florida International University, where she studies the great hammerhead shark in the predator ecology and conservation lab. She is also a National Geographic explorer and a writer for Our Ocean. In our interview with Erin, we learn about her current PhD work with the Great Hammerhead Shark, but also her past work through her master's research, which is not involving sharks at all, but actually the Red Snapper. We also dive into her love of writing and we talk about her new children's book, which will be released this month as well. So let's just jump right into our interview and get to know our newest Gills Club team science member, Erin Spencer. Welcome, Erin, to the Gills Talk. We are so excited to be able to hear um, all about your research today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm familiar with uh, Gills Talk, and I've heard from so many other great researchers that you've had on this podcast, so I'm really excited to join. Oh, well, thank you so much. So to kick it off, what, what do you do? What is your research focused on? Yeah, so I'm a marine ecologist and science writer, and right now I'm currently pursuing my PhD at Florida International University. Um, so I'm based down in Miami, and I study the movement and behavior of great hammerhead sharks. So we're really lucky here in Miami that we have great access to this incredible um, ecosystem in the Atlantic, and that we actually have a lot of great hammerheads that come pretty close off to shore. And there's really not many places in the world that we have access to great hammerheads in the way we do here. So what I do is I put uh, biologgers, which are data collecting devices that are mounted on the back, uh, on the fin of a great hammerhead. And then they swim around and collect data for about 24 to 48 hours. And then we get all sorts of really cool insights into how fast are they going, um, how deep are they going, what sort of temperatures are, uh, what's the temperature profile. So we have lots of like really, really fine scale um, data points that we can kind of construct uh, this better idea of their movement and behavior. I love that. We've had a few scientists already come on that work with hammerheads, but it seems like each scientist does something different with them. And I think that's really a fun way to show that just because, you know, it is the same species that there's still so much to learn about that one species. So you are putting, you know, these transmitters on to learn about movements and speed and water temperature. And then, so how do you then collect that data? Does that tag pop off? Do you get it through via satellite? Do you have to go collect it? Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up a really good point too about that there's a lot of different folks studying great hammerheads, but everyone kind of has these different approaches. And I think something that's so fascinating about studying great hammerheads is that they are one of the most recognizable fish in the ocean as far as sharks go. If, if, even if your shark ID isn't that great, you can probably identify a hammerhead, right? So it's really, but, but because they're really huge and hard to study, there's actually a lot 
that we don't know about them. So it takes a lot of different skill sets and a lot of different resources um, to go out and collect this sort of information. Uh, for our research specifically, so uh, we put we put this data logger on the dorsal fin of a hammerhead. They swim off. It's a, it's a non-invasive sort of attachment method. It's just a clamp that goes on their dorsal. And these are big animals, so they can handle a tag like that. And then after about 24 hours, the tag will actually pop off. So because these data loggers collect so much data, the file size is too big to actually transmit via satellite. So we have to physically go back and retrieve those tags. So once the tag pops off, it's floating um, at the surface of the ocean. Uh, it's got two ways that we can actually find out where they are. So first is a satellite tag, uh, which sends as soon as it hits the surface, it sends a satellite signal with coordinates of its location. Um, and then I actually get an email to my phone of the approximate coordinates. Then we go out, we get the boat. Hopefully it hasn't gone, the animal hasn't gone too far. These are big animals. They can swim quite long distances, mm -hmm. but we go out to this approximate location, but it's not exact. So we use, a, once we get close, about a mile or so away from where we think it is, um, we have another tool uh, where we have a, a radio signal that comes out of the tag so we can actually listen for it. And that can sometimes, I think the fastest we've found a tag once we get out to the approximate location is about... 10 minutes, but that's a really lucky day. <laughs> Typically it takes a lot longer, especially because it's, you know, these tags are bright and they may look like they're easy to see. Um, but once you're in the water and things are choppy and I mean, it can take hours. It's, it can be brutal. Yes. Um, we do that. So our team is putting cat's tags on white sharks up here off of the Cape. And when they pop off, sometimes it's really easy that it's a quick 20 minute jet out. There it is. And then it's we find it. And then other times uh, they went up to Maine <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> somewhere yeah, yeah. to grab it one. Has, when you first open that email of like where the coordinates are, it, it's so unnerving because you're like, this is either going to be a really good piece of news or it's really going to ruin my day <laughs> as to like where we think this tag is. But so, you know, this too, I mean, this sort of research is really exciting and it's also infuriating. There's just so many things that have to go right yes. for it to work. Right. So you've got to find the animal, kind of find the shark, right? These are critically endangered species. They're not just, you they're know, not easily accessible. easy to find. <laughs> and then, um, so first you have to find the shark. You've got to deploy the tag. The tag has to work. Um, so I'm sure you know this very well. Like that's not a given. <laughs> the tag has to work. It has to collect data. And then you have to hear from the tag and then you have to download it. So we've had every step in between where, well, you know, successful deployment, successful retrieval, and then you download and the files corrupt or something has happened in the file and you might not know what happens why that's the case but it's all part of this but when it's when it works though it's the most exciting and, and rewarding thing yes have you ever had one that you haven't been able to retrieve knock on wood i haven't lost a tag yet um oh, so nice i know i know but i feel like I'm sorry i knocked on wood and then my dog started barking thinking that there's someone at the door so, but uh, I did have a deployment last spring where this particular sort of data logger is a little bit different um, because it captures speed, which isn't necessarily a, a metric that's collected by all different types of tags. Um, and it has a little propeller and we had this um, cool deployment. It was like a, our longest deployment. And then I get back the tag and it's jam full of seaweed, like something like the propeller was just blocked. 
So we did get some data, but all of that speed data, which is what we're interested in, we just, we just didn't have, but that's what, you know, it's the unpredictability of field work. And at least we got the tag back and you can, can try to redeploy it. Yeah. So then you've been talking about the speed and you said something that you're really trying to focus on. So are we trying to learn like how fast are they going toward predators or, or say not, not predators, but prey, or are we trying to learn about those interactions more? Yeah, absolutely. So speed is a really interesting measurement because it's, it's difficult to get. And a lot of the traditional ways that we figure out animal speed is in uh, captivity or in, in swim tunnels, but because these hammerhead sharks are so big. We're working with adults. We can't just easily put them in a swim tunnel, right? We just don't have the the ability to do that. So speed helps us not only understand, you know, how fast they're moving is kind of interesting, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. interesting in itself. Um, But then we can use that to figure out what are the caloric needs, right? Like how how much prey do these animals need to consume in order to fuel their movement throughout throughout the water? And it's interesting because then... Uh, these particular tags, we can take speed and magnetism, uh, which is actually the, the tag's position in relation to the Earth's magnetic field. And we can calculate a couple of, do some magic in R <laughs> and actually construct 3D <laughs> tracks of how the animal's moving throughout their environment. And then we can look at, okay, so maybe they're uh, exhibiting some search patterns some foraging behavior, right? We can actually start to reconstruct that whole path and look at some patterns or some unique events. And then, um, learn more about their foraging behavior too. How cool is it that we can learn all this just from a tag? (laughs) Right. And, and the fact that like the animal is going out and collecting that data for us. I mean, it's the closest we can get to learning about them in their natural environment, which is something we wouldn't typically be able to see in a way that's minimally invasive to the animal, right? Like after that 24, 48 hours, when that tag pops off, you know, like it's with a clamp, but that clamp will dissolve eventually in water. It's built to dissolve Mm -hmm. so that there won't be any, um, you know, residual effects on the animal, which is, which is really, I mean, that's why we're doing this, right? It's to um, learn about and protect these incredible species. And so we want to, the safety of the animal is paramount in all of this. So Absolutely. So you also talked about that you are a writer as well. So I would love to hear all about your writing. I know you are also a National Geographic Explorer as well. I know you've done some articles with them. So just explain, go in depth. <laughs> I'd love to hear all about your writing side too. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, it's funny because I haven't, I never really considered myself a writer until recently. It was writing was just a hobby where a lot of times it was a way to feel productive when I felt like, and feel creative. It was a creative outlet, I guess is the easiest way to say it. Because, you know, sometimes you get so bogged down with like data analysis and working on the gear and writing was, especially writing about ocean life um, was a really fun way to stay excited about what I was working on um, and share that excitement with, with other folks. So I've been, I used to do it as part of my job. I used to, when I first started out, I worked for uh, Ocean Conservancy and did a lot of writing for their website. Um, and I still continue to do that now. That's something that I love. And it turns out that that skill has helped me throughout my career, throughout graduate school, um, throughout other jobs that I have taken in between graduate school. Now I actually have a children's book coming out in, in March um, with story publishing, which actually uh, based out of New England. And uh, it's all about coral reefs and it's targeting young audiences, children seven to 10 years old. 
So I think that's something that has been a real exciting challenge as well. Uh, writing for a younger audience mm-hmm. is such a different kind of combination of brain energy <laughs> than the sort of writing that we do in, you know, for writing peer-reviewed journal articles, right? And so it was a challenge in the sense of like, okay, how do you describe spawning behavior of corals to a seven-year-old, right? Yeah. Like how do you, how do you describe sexual and asexual reproduction? How do you describe nematocysts? Like, and I think one of the things that I discovered in that is that kids just are able to absorb so much more than I think, at least I sometimes give credit for, where, I, where I'm like, nah, zoxanthellae is probably too complicated of a word. And it's not. The kids are like, zoxanthellae, like they pick it up right away. So that's been, it's been a really great creative outlet and has actually made me uh, happier, healthier throughout all of the other ups and downs of research. I just, I just like that, how you said that, that like you found your outlet to be able to one, it was just something that you love to do. And then you made it into a way to, to one, inform others as well. And to be able to have a children's book, I can't wait for that to come out. I mean, I, I'm probably going to buy it. I don't care. I'm not a child, obviously, <laughs> but I will probably get it because that sounds like such a fun book and you don't see children's books based around coral. So like, was that something that you noticed and you're like, I'm going to write this about coral or was it something that like, how did you come around the coral topic for a children's book? Yeah. You know, I think you, you bring up an interesting point and I, would not go to, I would not classify myself as like a a kid's book expert in the slightest, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is a very new field for me. But one thing that I think this book really fills a niche is it is, it's real science. It's the sort of science that you would see covered in like a textbook uh, for college students who, you know, we're learning about the, the references I used were like my invertebrate biology textbook from when I was in college, right? But we're tailoring that to a much younger demographic, right? To make it really accessible. The, the uh, illustrations are spectacular, right? So even if even if you didn't want to read all of the vocab words, you can stare at these gorgeous photos of, uh, or gorgeous illustrations of, of marine life. And it it treats kids like they are young scientists. And I, and that was really the point going through the whole thing where, you know, you're not, not that there's anything wrong with this, but it's not like a personified coral or um, it's not a anthropomorphized coral polyp, I guess is what I was trying to say. It's, you know, just teaching them the science and getting them excited about it and giving tools for um, what can you do in your home and your community to help the coral reefs, right? One of the big takeaways of the book is you don't have to live near the coral or even see it for yourself to appreciate it and help keep their keep that environment and that ecosystem healthy. The uh, idea for the book was this collaborative effort with Story where they really came with this incredible idea and are making these sorts of educational, uh, beautifully illustrated books for this particular age group. Um, and they're making that a, a big priority. So they have another incredible one on monarch, monarch butterflies, for example, um, getting kids excited about the migration of the monarch butterfly. And throughout this, they really wanted a combination of someone that is an author that can write, right, as an author, but also has the background in the science. And so I felt very fortunate to be able to fill that role for them. I love that you mentioned that you don't have to live near a coral reef to be able to help the coral reef. And I think that's something really important to note. I get asked that if I do a virtual program for a school or a library out in Illinois or Canada, 
and they'll say like, well, like sharks are cool and we love sharks, but how do we help them? And I think it's an important thing to note, not just with sharks or with coral, but with anyone in our ocean, if we have listeners here that are not on a coastline that, you know, you can play a role in being able to help our oceans. If you are not near one, if it's one by reading a book and learning more about them, or if it is like volunteering at your local watershed or just being, you know, more conscious of, you know, your, what, what, like what plastics you're using or what you're putting into our earth itself. So I like that you mentioned that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, and it's something that I have to, you know, pinch myself all the time. The fact that I get to live near the water and I work on the water, right? Like I spend a lot of my time in and on the water, but you know, where I grew up, I grew up North of Baltimore in Maryland I didn't live near the ocean, but we lived near, we were in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, right? So a lot of my early environmental education was about all of the choices that you make have an effect on the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And so the public school district where I grew up did an incredible job of getting, like bringing the bay to us and like having it really be something that the kids got excited about and felt ownership of and in in sort of like, I'm proud because I love blue crabs and blue crabs are part of the Chesapeake Bay, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's something that it's so exciting when, when you talk to other folks that, that feel this way too, that like we're really lucky and fortunate to be able to work on this topic, but it's also, it's a privilege and it's then a responsibility to then share that with folks and share the science and, and um, the excitement of, of what we get to work on. Absolutely. I, that is something that I always note in school programs here, especially on Cape Cod that you know, students are so lucky and people that live here and they can go to their local beach and they can see a white shark from their, their, from the shoreline. They can see sea, sea turtles and whales and like, you know, like, and then like, how lucky are we to live here? And then very similar, you know, I'm not from Massachusetts. I'm from Pennsylvania. So for me, you know, like, and just like you very similar, like going right outside of Baltimore, you know, that like you, you're able to have those experiences still that brought you in and being able then to have you have that connection as well, but kind of switching gears a little bit. I know that your master's was the red snapper, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So you go, you went from red snapper to great hammerheads. Like how did that jump <laughs> happen? Yeah. <laughs> They're two completely different animals. They're both fish, but <laughs> I know. it couldn't be more different. Like when I started in an undergrad and my first grants of National Geographic were all around invasive species. And then I went to my master's and I did red snapper and seafood mislabeling. And then it, as you said, my words, not yours, right? It makes absolutely no sense then to jump to, to working on great hammerheads. I think that's something that I consider uh, both a strength and sometimes it can be, it can be a weakness of having so many different interests that kind of lead you to different things. In the end, I think that uh, the diversity of the sort of things I've worked on is I've loved it. I think it's made, it, it's been quite an exciting journey, but so I, when I was working in Washington, DC, I did a lot of work on communications around fisheries policy, like uh, federal policy, catch limits, that sort of thing. And I thought that when I, when I went to my master's, I did a master's because I, it was kind of what I saw of people that had the jobs that I thought I might want to have. Um, they all had masters. And so I went and did a research-based master's at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and I wanted to work on fisheries there. So I did two chapters. One was around 
community engagement of a uh, re fisheries reporting app. So essentially, if you're a recreational angler, it's this app that go that you can log all of your catch, and it uh, provides another piece of count data that then can be used to construct the population size of those species. And then I also worked on seafood mislabeling, so genetic testing of seafood fillets. And I collected all sorts of samples from grocery stores, restaurants, and sushi, uh, sushi restaurants, grocery stores, and um, seafood markets. Sorry, it's been a couple of years since I did that. I used to be able to just rattle them off like that. And I found that uh, in, it, from North Carolina to Florida, and the idea was, what's the mislabeling rate overall? Is there a difference between vendor type and a difference between state? And I think I can sum it up by saying my party trick is I'll ruin seafood for you <laughs> because we found 72.6% uh, of all those samples of red snapper were mislabeled. Wow. And the sushi restaurants were 100% mislabeling rate and it was almost all tilapia. Wow. A big caveat with that is that is red snapper, which we know has a, a pretty high rate of mislabeling because of previous studies that is not that is not applicable to all different types of seafood, right? But I thought that was such an interesting, it's such an interesting intersection of conservation policy and, you know, culture. Like it, in North Carolina, for example, we did a study with shrimp and like supporting local North Carolina fishermen is a big message that people get as, as a local North Carolina. And so if you go to your grocery store and you buy local North Carolina shrimp, you're, you're making a decision as a consumer and trusting that, what you're getting is what you, they say you are. And that's not always the case. So I think I could ramble on about that for a long time. I, I won't, um, the, but the point was that I really, it, I love that project and it did really kind of change the way um, I viewed like my role as a consumer and as a scientist. How did I switch to great hammerheads? Yes. Um, and that's a great question. And I think it's a little bit of, it's a lot of work timing and some serendipitous kind of luck. But I, when I was in my master's, I decided I, I wasn't done with field research and that I really wanted to continue into my PhD, but that I wanted to do something that was more field intensive. And I wanted to live in a place where my field work was right there, right? Because there's just a lot of uh, benefits to living where you work, right? Mm -hmm. So at the time I was doing some field research in the Galapagos with my master's advisor, and we had a lot of downtime as we were waiting for these experiments to run. So what I did when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next is I downloaded a whole bunch of papers that I had in my, yeah, on my computer. And I read the abstract of all of them and I sorted them into folders of very interesting, somewhat interesting or not at all interesting. And I did it really fast, right? Just first impressions, gut impressions. And then I went through the very interesting folder and looked at what those papers had in common. And across the board, it was a lot of predator prey dynamics and a lot of uh, kind of food web ecology. And so I decided that I wanted to do something with predator prey. And so I interviewed at a, a bunch of institutions in the Southeast. I knew I wanted to be down here. And then as a matter of fact, uh, the, the lab that I ended up in, I actually met my PI. Well, he was also doing research in the Galapagos as I was down there doing research. So a little bit serendipitous that we happened to meet as I was trying to figure out <laughs> what I was gonna do next. And then the, this project came together with the, with the great hammerheads. And so I think it is it was really big learning curve coming in after mostly handling dead snapper to be <laughs> <laughs> to live great hammerhead sharks. But I, I have a great, incredible uh, lab and 
the graduate students at, at FIU are, are so supportive of each other as we all work towards this, this shark handling and really an emphasis on safety and the welfare of the animal. And so I feel very fortunate to have learned under, under all of them and, and under my advisor. See, I feel like, and it's a theme, I think, with this podcast is that, you know, your path is going to be so unpredictable <laughs> and you never know where it is going to lead you. And I think for you, that is the most perfect example of that. You, know, <laughs> yeah, you, went, yeah. you went from sampling dead fish to one of the more larger shark species that are, you know, alive <laughs> right, right. and be able to be able to have that transition, I think is one, it speaks for itself that, you know, science can really take you in so many different ways that, you know, sometimes you never know where you might end up. <laughs> yeah. And I think that if I could go back and kind of give myself advice, right? Like when I came in, to be honest, my first month or two of this program, I was like, did I make the right choice? Cause I, I, it was just such a, I'd spent years learning about the red snapper fishery and before that working in that in DC and then I was like, and then I just chose to start in a totally new field with a totally new study species. And like, that was a harder, that was the harder path to choose. Right. And I think that has made me a much stronger scientist. And if I could go back, I would say like, just because you don't know it doesn't mean you don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. You just have to give yourself, like, if you can read it, you can learn it. Right. And, and that's so much of what graduate school is about. Um, and you just have to trust yourself that like, just because you don't know it right now, that doesn't mean that you won't know it in the future. You just have to, to put in the time and trust yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that is great advice to end on, on the podcast for today. But before we do then wrap up, Erin, do you have any social medias that our, our listeners can follow you on to keep up with your research, the book, when it's going to be published? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm on Twitter. It's uh, quite a lot. Uh, it's at E.T. Spencer. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm Aaron T. Spencer. Um, and I'd love to to connect with anyone. And I'm constantly um, sharing updates on, on Twitter about our work and, and would just uh, love to connect with anyone who's interested. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a great conversation to have about a little bit of everything that yeah, you all over the place <laughs> so far. No, but I like that. It keeps things interesting. I mean, for us, I mean, for me to learn about you and it's all I mean for you as well. So thank you. It was so great. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to, to hear all the future scientists you have on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and review and as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.